VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Your spring is about to get a lot more power with the Home Depot. Get gas-like power from mowing, trimming, and blowing with the Ryobi 18-volt OnePlus system starting at just $89. Mowing power that can take on a third of an acre with one charge. Trimming power with up to two hours of runtime. And blowing power with 110 miles per hour of clearing force. All on one interchangeable battery. Get cordless gas-like power for the entire lawn with the Ryobi 18-volt OnePlus system. Only at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. It's Friday, January 2nd, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. Each week we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds, on Twitter at inquiringshow, and on Facebook at slash inquiringmindspodcast. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or any other podcasting app. This week's episode is sponsored by lynda.com. lynda.com is used by millions of people around the world and has over 3,000 courses on topics like web development, photography, visual design, and business, as well as software training like Excel, WordPress, and Photoshop. And you can get a free 10-day trial to lynda.com by visiting lynda.com slash minds. Learn something new in 2015. That's l-y-n-d-a dot com slash minds. Joining me again as guest host is Kishore Hari. He's the director of the Bay Area Science Festival, and he's a herder of nerds. You can find him on Twitter as at Science Quiche, which is kind of awesome. So Kishore, welcome back to Inquiring Minds. Thanks for having me back. So why are you the Science Quiche? Uh, my nickname growing up in, in uh, was Quiche. It was uh, in seventh grade, Christine Carroll. Yes, I'm using her full name heard uh, my name cut off on the rolls from Kishore to K-I-S-H, and the teacher pronounced it quiche. And she was like, ah, you're a quiche. And it just kind of stuck from there somehow. You know, <laughs> seventh grade nicknames just kind of worm their way into your life. I like it. Well, so if you want to follow it on Twitter, though, quiche is spelt like the breakfast food, not like his name. So It's <laughs> brunchy, too. <laughs> brunchy, brunchy, you're right. <laughs> So we've just turned another corner. It's 2015. We're smack in the middle of another decade. And although the calendar that we've agreed upon is somewhat arbitrary, there's solid research suggesting that these milestones like New Year's Day, birthdays, big anniversaries, and so on, give us an opportunity to reinvent our identities. And that's why New Year's resolutions are so common and why the gym happens to be so full in January. But for me, the more important question is, why does the gym then thin out by March or April? Why can't we keep our New Year's resolutions? And this is where the science of motivation comes in. Now, at some point, you've either heard someone say, if you want to have something happen, think positively about it. Imagine that beautiful future. Follow your dreams, etc. Perhaps you've even given that advice yourself to your younger cousins or your children at the dinner table. And there's a whole industry built on the idea that you can think your way to success. If you just keep a positive outlook and dream up a future that's bright and shiny, eventually it'll be yours. And for a long time, the field of positive psychology provided us with ammunition to fight the haters or naysayers. But for the past few decades, 
quietly and somewhat in the background of the movement, social psychologist Gabrielle Uttingen has been amassing a major data set that proves otherwise. So that's probably not a huge surprise to many of us who are interested in science and who are skeptical by nature. Um, the fact that positive thinking isn't the only way or isn't the only thing that we need in order to accomplish difficult goals. But what's interesting about Uningen is that she was trained by the father of positive psychology himself, Marty Seligman. And Uningen is now a professor of psychology with joint appointments at NYU and the University of Hamburg. And she's just published a book that documents her research and all the papers she's published that have been largely ignored by the self-help industry called Rethinking Positive Thinking. So when I asked her whether she thought daydreaming or fantasizing about some idealistic future was a good or a bad thing, here's what she said. The more positively, sheer positively idealistic daydreams we have, the less we are motivated at the moment to get into gears and to actually achieving it. And that also implies if I don't want to do anything or if I cannot do anything because there is no actual possibility, um, then these daydreams and these positive daydreams might be a, a nice way to, um, you know, just to kind of waste our time. Kishore, what do you think? So as a professional daydreamer, I found it a little bit disconcerting that daydreaming in and of itself wasn't uh, wasn't going to potentially help me. But I wasn't terribly surprised. The notion of just sort of deluding yourself by having a uh, exceptional daydream and having that bring results always felt a little like voodoo science to me anyways. Uh, so the notion that there needs to be a little bit more to it, there has to be some... Uh, se- uh, semblance of realism uh, really made sense. Uh, but the thing that I was left questioning is when I think about the people in my life that I really, um, uh, that I'm attracted to, that I like having around, they tend to be really positive people and people that I would consider positive thinkers. Uh, and so while the methodology of positive thinking might not work out, uh, I think there's ancillary benefits, don't you? Uh, I do, I do. And I think, you know, I think being optimistic makes you happier anyway, right? I mean, I think it's in some ways it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. But, you know, what's interesting to me from her research is this notion that actually daydreaming in the wrong way you know, thinking positively in the wrong way can actually make it less likely for you to achieve your goals. That's the really fascinating part for me. I mean, if it was just a matter of saying, look, it doesn't really work. And, you know, people can think about being thin, uh, and they're still going to break their diet. I mean, that's less interesting. What's more interesting to me is that the people who, you know, fantasize in a particular way are less likely to, to achieve those goals than people who positively think or fantasize in a more in a different way, in a specific way that that Gabrielle has studied. I'm sort of fascinated by the contrast that this could potentially bring up between uh, daydreaming, positive thinking, and creativity, which is that this notion, and there's a wealth of research about sort of taking that time and having having sort of those uh, wild lingering thoughts really does develop a sense of creativity uh, within you um, at times if you do it the right way. I wonder how this sort of complements or detracts from that notion. Yeah, I'm excited about just the fact that scientists are now studying daydreaming as a thing that can be studied, right? And I think that we're going to come up to a point where we realize that daydreaming is just as complicated as many other cognitive phenomena, that it's not just one unitary thing, that it can be done in different ways, that it can have different effects depending on how people use their daydreaming time. And so, you know, I'm excited to actually start to tease apart some of these issues. Are you listening, mom? She just said uh, what I was doing all those years. It was complicated thinking, not just... 
idling my thumbs and not making my bet. Well, I'm not saying not going that far. But in any case, um, let's get back to what's happening this week. And there are a couple of interesting science in the news um, pieces that I came across. And, and one is kind of gross. So let's start with that. It, it, this is there needs to be a sort of a warning here, because we're going to talk about the grossest infestation that has reemerged in the 21st century. It is one of the biggest health crises in the country. And of course, we're talking about bed bugs. Yeah. So fair trigger warning. Kishore, have you ever had a problem with bed bugs? You know, the last apartment we lived in, uh, it was like a 20 unit building. And uh, six of the units developed bed bugs. And all of a sudden, we threw like all science out the window and all reason thinking. We started like, like pouring stuff across like the the walkway entering our our um uh, our apartment we put like diatomaceous earth because supposedly bed bugs will get stuck in it and tear themselves to bits and like my wife started burning sage it was the most mystical thing because we were terrified of these little critters that were the that are the cockroaches of the mattress world uh and um we ne- they never ended up infesting us but it was it just overnight, it changed the whole tenor of that living space. And people threw out thousands of dollars worth of furniture and uh, and and uh, clothing items just to be free of them. How, how about you? Have you had bed bugs? You know, before? I've never had them before. And although I have to say, I always thought that they were something that happened to people in impoverished situations and, you know, in slums or whatever. And, and so when I uh, started traveling to New York more regularly, and I realized that, you know, you can get bed bugs in four or five star hotel rooms in New York, just because of the proximity and how contagious in, in a way that they are. I think it's fascinating that we don't know why they've reemerged. They essentially were gone at the beginning of the last century. And only in the last 20, 30 years have we seen this resurgence and resurgence in areas that we consider sort of clean and well-maintained. And so, and how pervasive they've been in terms of um, uh, of uh, transmitting across um, across communities. There seems to be no barrier to them. So this com- this brings me to a story that I think will probably um, get related as you know describing the work of an unsung heroine. So this is a woman who probably has the most thankless job in all of science. Regine Grease at Simon Fraser University. Her job is to study bedbugs, but she also has to feed them every week with her own blood. So she's been for the for the past five years sticking her arm into these cages of bed bugs um, where they have a colony of over a thousand bed bugs and she lets them feed on her. So it says something she's endured something like 180,000 bed bug bites um, in order to figure out what makes these uh, critters live or die. No, she didn't have the allergic reaction. So <laughs> it wasn't like she was putting herself through torture. But I've never read a science paper where it was clear that the scientists had such a deep disdain <laughs> for the object under study. You can clearly tell that she did not like bed bugs and how they ended up feeding them. Yeah, so that's dedication to science. I have to say, she must, you know, there, there's got to be some kind of prize out there for her just for doing that. But what's really great is that she might have solved the problem for all of us. 
So she was working with a chemist, Robert Britton, and another team of uh, students, and they found a solution to the bed bug problem. Essentially, there is a cocktail of chemical attractants or pheromones that lure the bed bugs into traps and keep them there. And finally, just this month, after a series of successful trials in infested apartments in Vancouver, uh, they have actually published their research in a major chemistry journal that says that finally they have this um, pheromone that seems to work. But it wasn't just a single compound. It was a combination of a couple different compounds. And I, I want to underscore how much of a heroine she is here, because she would find a compound that we thought was going to be the one. And then uh, and it worked in the lab, and then she would test it in an apartment, and it wouldn't work. And so they had to go back to the drawing table and find, like, the concoction. And what was um, the, the creepiest part of this entire paper for me was when they when they find the last pheromone residing in sort of the aftermath of basically bed bug poop. Yeah. 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 So there's a whole, you know, there, there's a whole series of things that, that maybe are different between what's happening in an apartment and what's happening in the lab. And they finally found these, this six compound cocktail that seems to work in the apartments, which is as pheromone bait, which is amazing. And so they're actually working with a uh, Canadian company called Contact Enterprises to develop the first effective and affordable bait and trap for getting rid of bed bug infestations. And they expect it to be available next year. I, you, My favorite part is when you look at a lot of popular articles referencing this story um, that basically says, no over-the-counter kind of treatments currently work for bed bugs, and this is potential. If you scroll down to the comment sections, they're just full of people prescribing their own treatments for bed bugs <laughs> infestations. Um, so it just tells you how pervasive this is and how incredibly exciting it is that there might actually be a real bait that works and keeps them trapped. Yeah, it's awesome. And I, I guess I should say, since the paper was published in 2014, next year probably means 2015. So I think we can we can actually expect this um, this to be soon. And I bet as soon as they have the commercially available product, it'll make the headlines and, and we'll have a big celebration. So moving on, it's also the end of the holiday season. And one of the things that is wonderful about the holiday season, in my opinion, is the fact that people light their homes and various other parts of their world. They light everything up. With Christmas lights. And it's really beautiful. Um, but there's also something special that's that's coming out, that's just come out, uh, about looking at the difference in the way that cities light up, even when it's not the holiday season, and how you can see that from space. So, Indre, have you ever seen those wonderful images that NASA puts out, the Earth at night photos? Yeah, they're gorgeous. And there are some, there are some incredible videos uh, of, of watching night sort of fall upon, uh, uh, fall upon the planet. And so NASA has a number of satellites that are on the, the dark side of the, uh, the Earth, uh, always away from the sun. And they can detect various forms of light. And over the, a number of years, what they've used um, these arrays to do is actually compare over time what lights look like over certain um, urban areas uh, across the world. And then they're able to sort of, through calculations, um, subtract off uh, areas that repeat. And so we're able to see fascinating things like in, de in December, what does the U.S. look like in big urban areas uh, and what the difference looks like between December and November. And so they're essentially able to image Christmas lights. <laughs> yeah, from space. From, from space. space. So and, yeah, it got me to think, this must be what Santa Claus sees, right? Is this how he can tell, you know, who... <laughs> 
Well, as we all know, red red is a, a good light to cut through the fog. It is the right color of the spectrum. So he chose well with Rudolph. So, But I don't know if that means he's not able to see all colors of the spectrum uh, equally well. But uh, what was fascinating to me um, about the study is I think the Christmas lights is a nice little hook. What it really showed was contrasting uh, cultural centers. So the U.S. versus Europe or the U.S. versus um, the Middle East and see what lighting patterns at night look like in these different communities. Uh, and I think I had two favorites that really came up. Um, you, uh, they did an image over Berlin, which was amazing. And you could see on different sides of the city, the East and West Berlin, the lighting is very different, attributing to like different patterns of how they treated light. So the light on, on the East side is actually brighter and it's more um, it's more orange. They use more sodium lamps on that side versus uh, a whiter light. Um, and the second thing I found fascinating was uh, they studied uh, uh, lighting in uh, uh, Muslim countries during Ramadan, which is a fasting time. And so they expected to see a little bit more light usage at night when people are coming off of fast. And it was amazing seeing pictures of Cairo um, comparing and contrasting the two. Uh, so what they really think this is about isn't imaging the best Christmas light display from middle America, but really highlighting cultural differences through the way we light. Yeah. It's, I found that really interesting. And I, you know, one of the thing, other um, charts from the paper, this is a paper, we're talking about a paper um, that was published in a journal called remote sensing. Um, and there was a, a chart there that described um, different, airports too and how they're lit uh with using a tokyo airport as the kind of baseline and how you know how much brighter so for example chicago is many times brighter um even though it has sort of the same number of planes going in and out uh, as tokyo uh, which i thought was really interesting too so one thing that one way in which they hope to use some of this information is to try to figure out where there is waste energy waste that comes from light and so you know if tokyo can run its airport just fine with using less light light, um, you know, is there something that we can do to make Chicago airport more efficient? Oh, there's lots of things that we could do to make Chicago airport more efficient. <laughs> Sorry, somebody, more light efficient. <laughs> <laughs> somebody that's been stuck on the tarmac at O'Hare for numerous hours. I do. I was really struck, and they didn't really offer much of an explanation about this, of how much brighter U.S. cities are compared to um, their European counterparts. So it, it wasn't a socioeconomic thing at all. Like Western civilized countries, for whatever reason, the U.S. is brighter. USA, USA. Well, but- yeah, we can. Yeah, I mean, you can you can make a lot of just so stories about why that might be the case. And I think you know, I think we we don't know yet, obviously. But you know, um, yeah, it could be just that that we consume more, that we like more light. You could even argue, well, you know, there's more crime in the U.S., so we need the light. You know, who knows. Well, I like the explanation that Santa needs to see his way around the U.S. (laughs) We'll leave that uh, out to the cultural anthropologists to decide. So with that, let's take a short break and we'll be back with my interview with Gabrielle Uttingen. Kickstart your new year and challenge yourself to learn something new with a free 10-day trial to lynda.com. Lynda.com is used by millions of people around the world and has over 3,000 courses on topics like web development, photography, visual design, and business, as well as software training like Excel, WordPress, and Photoshop. All of their courses are taught by experts and new courses are added to the site every week. Whether you want to set new financial goals, find a better work-life balance, invest in a new hobby, ask your boss for a raise, find a new job, or improve upon your current job skills in 2015, 
lynda.com has something for everyone. So sign up for your free 10-day trial today by visiting lynda.com slash minds. You'll get unlimited access to every course on lynda.com, and you'll also get access to watch these on tablets, iPhone, and Android mobile devices. There are courses like Getting Things Done, Business Writing Fundamentals, Small Business Secrets, Breaking Out of a Rut, Foundations of Photography, Exposure, and Composition. So do something good for yourself in 2015 and sign up for a free 10-day trial to lynda.com by visiting lynda.com slash minds. Learn something new in 2015. Welcome to Inquiring Minds, Gabrielle Oettingen. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you on our show, especially now when everyone is thinking about how 2015 is going to be better than 2014 and everyone's made some New Year's resolutions and I'd like you to help us keep them. So let's jump right in and let me ask you, what is it about the turn of the year that seems to motivate people? I mean, you know, the worst time for me to go to the gym is in January because it'll be packed and it's annoying. Uh, So why is it that people are so motivated at the start of the year? Well, um, we didn't do research on that topic, but um, what I can tell you is that um, whenever there is a beginning, um, people feel that there is a kind of um, clean um, play to kind of improve the future. So, you know, after your 60th birthday, after your 30th birthday, after your 20th birthday, um, um, you feel there's a new episode and um, a new episode means itself to um, positive dreams. So that's what people are doing. They're they're starting to um, have a more positive outlook at these sort of uh, changing points uh, that, that then seems to be motivating to them? Or is it that um, they, they're sort of, their identity is tied to this new change and they're kind of, they see it as an opportunity to reshape uh, how they think about themselves? Well, you know, you know, it's from all the... Um, changes of year uh, you experience already um, that you you think about what was good in 2014, what um, uh, do I wish for 2015 or um, what would be um, a a good project to tackle in 2015. And um, that's the reason why then people start fantasizing about, um, you know, sort of fulfilling things which um, didn't work out as well as they had wished um, in the old years. So they sort of um, fantasize about um, what what could be better and um, how nice that we can fantasize about what could be better um, for the future. So that's, of course, what we hear about all the time. If you want something to happen, think positively. Don't think negatively. Uh, So uh, tell me about your research and about, in particular, positive thinking. So is this something that really does lead to positive outcomes? uh, Or is it just a lot of self-help, you know, and and useless information? Well, the problem with positive thinking is that um, people talk about positive thinking as if it was one kind of thing. Um, and certainly positive thinking needs to be seen in a, in a differentiated way. There are different ways of positive thinking about the future. There are um, different ways that are helpful at some situations, but not helpful in other situations. They're helpful with respect to certain outcomes, but not with respect to other outcomes. So um, if you start thinking about positive thinking in a, in a kind of sophisticated, a little bit more differentiated way, then you would discover well, there is a whole lot of um, uh, kind of different forms of positive thinking and there's 
a whole lot of different functions of positive thinking um, that we usually don't capture when we, when we say, you know, positive thinking, just positive thinking, positive thinking is good. So it's a little bit like how we used to conceptualize memory as just kind of, you know, one big thing. And now as, as scientists, we know that memory is actually made up of m- many different components and there are many different ways of studying memory. So can you help us unpack positive thinking? So how, what are the sort of salient features that we should consider when we think about how we think positively? I mean, you can think positively about yourself as a person, you can think positively about the world in general, you can think positively about the future, you can think positively about the present, um, you can, um, or about the past. So you can think positively about very different, um, contents and topics. But you can also differentiate positive thinking in terms of different forms of positive thinking. So you can have positive expectations, which are based on past performance. So you expect that you do well in a meeting because in past meetings you did well, um, especially in this specific context. You expect that you interact with a person in a kind of fruitful and happy way because you know, you know, from the past, these interactions went well. And these are expectations. These are judgments about how likely it is that certain events happen in the future or not. And um, um, these expectations or judgments about the likelihood of certain um, events or behaviors happening in the future or not, these are the, the, the positive thinking um, the form of positive thinking that has been um, researched um, the most in the past. and there, But there is another form of positive thinking, which are these positive daydreams and fantasies and images we have about the future where we sort of depict the future in a kind of um, ideal, kind of happy way. And these positive daydreams and fantasies, um, they kind of occupy our minds um, during everyday life a lot, but they have been much, much less studied. And um, we we have been very sort of concerned with these, with the positivity of these daydreams and what um, actually, um, what they do for your behavior and for your behavior change. And now we're going back to the change between 2.14 and 2.15. Now, if you want to change your behavior, how can you use these positive fantasies or daydreams to actually kind of achieve a kind of long-term kind of behavior change. And that's the topic because we have found that um, the more positive um, people daydream about the future, actually the less well they do um, over time. So for example, we did studies with overweight um, women who had been enrolled in a weight reduction program. And the more positively they fantasized about losing weight in the program, the less well they did later on, the fewer pounds they actually lost after three months and after one year and after two years. So um, it was not helpful for them to positively fantasize about um, their success in the weight reduction program. Or you have um, another study where we looked at university graduates and um, the more positively they fantasized about an easy transition into work life, um, the less they did well in the future, meaning they fewer dollars they earned later on, two years later, and the fewer job offers they had, they had caught. And interestingly enough, the fewer applications they had sent out. So um, we replicated these patterns in, in many other um, studies where we found consistently that the more positively um, people fantasized and daydreamed about success in the future, the, the better they felt at the moment, but 
the the worst they did actually later on when it really came to realizing these positive patterns. That's really amazing because, of course, you know, it goes against so much self-help, self-help stuff out there. Um, so much of the guruism that seems to really be a large part of our society these days. But I want to just step back just for a minute at the definitions again. So you've, you've talked about uh, positive expectations based on prior performance. And then this kind of fantasizing and daydreaming as sort of two separate ways of thinking positively. So is there any evidence that the first way... You you know, having positive expectations on the basis of past performance is actually helpful above and beyond, you know, someone who would have just performed that way anyway? Uh, or is that, is it, is it just a kind of rational way of assessing performance? Actually, certainly, um, first of all, um, we need to say that the, the higher these expectations are, the better people do. Um, and these expectations are a good guide in terms of where I should put um, my effort in. So, for example, um, people who did very well in the past, um, they um, kind of form these high expectations that they also will do well in the future, and they actually will do um, better in the future. And um, as Albert Bandura has been showing over decades, um, there is apart from that past behavior is best predictor of future behavior, there is a motivational component there that um, if you have the efficacy that you actually can do it, which is based on actual past performance, um, that it actually helps you to um, to do well in the in the future. So so these these positive efficacy beliefs or these these positive efficacy efficacy judgments, um, they actually um, are helpful. Um, but they work based on past performance, whereas these positive daydreams and fantasies, they uh, come out of our needs and our um, wishes. So um, we did studies showing that uh, when we induce certain needs, um, that actually then people start to positively fantasize um, about fulfilling these needs. And um, that, that, that's, a, that's a very different way of positive thinking about the future than expectations. So yeah, let's talk a little bit about that. Can you characterize this kind of fantasy daydreaming? And how would you, how do you define it when you have someone who is in your lab and is involved in one of your experiments? How do you gauge whether what they are doing is sort of fantasizing and daydreaming about something rather than simply using positive thinking based on past performance? Well, we, we measure it in a very different way. The, the uh, expectations we measure by very simple questions. How likely is it um, that you will do well on this exam? Um, or how likely is it uh, that uh, you will get together with this person you would like to get together with when it comes to romantic relationships? Or how likely is it um, that you will lose the, the one to three pounds or something? Uh, whereas the, the daydreams uh, we assess in a very different way. We um, have several methods, but one of these methods is um, that we give them, give participants little scenarios, and in these scenarios, um, they can, they are little stories. So, for example, um, you have completed the weight reduction program, going back to the example I had with the study on weight loss. Uh, you have c- completed the weight reduction program, and you need a friend. So, this, um, as you wait for the friend to arrive, dot, 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 and then people fill in. 
um, the end of that story. So the story could be either be, you know, the friend is super surprised how wonderful I look and how many pounds I lost, or um, or the end of the story is less positive, less ideal. Sort of, um, yeah, the friend kind of hardly notices that I've really lost so many pounds. Or um, the friend says, well, you're nice, but, I, you know, the person doesn't really know whether she means it or not. Whatever. The, the idea really is, um, do people sort of spontaneously generate these daydreams um, that are ideal and very positive, or do they also consider um, problems and hindrances and impediments on the way to achieving their weight loss? So when you see these two different patterns, uh, and then you assess, then you, you look out further and see whether or not they were able to achieve whatever it is that they were striving for, what are you finding? Right. And what we do in these, in, me- in the measuring of the fantasies, we then ask participants to evaluate their own thoughts and images um, on a simple either 1 to 10 or 1 to 7 scale. Um, so that we know how positively or negatively the participants experience their own thoughts and images. And then we wait. We wait for three months or for one year or for two years. Um, and then we simply assess how successful people were. And, um, and then we measure, um, how much change in the wanted direction the participants, um, actually achieved. That's one way of doing it. The other way is actually experimentally so that we induce positive fantasies versus other thoughts and images which are in the control group, such as more questioning fantasies or negative fantasies or sexual thoughts or nothing, um, so kind of no treatment. Um, and then we see that those whom we induce to positively fantasize about fulfilling a wish, for example, with respect to a treatment or with respect to um, personal improvement, um, um, then we see that, that those who have been induced to positively fantasize, um, that they actually subjectively, in terms of what they tell us, experience less energy or also objectively in terms of that their blood pressure goes down. So they relax. And, um, and these then predict, um, that they do less well over time. So the idea really is that these positive fantasies seduce us to think that we are already there, we have already attained our desired future, and um, therefore they relax us and they they don't signal a need to actually go the hard way of achieving um, the desired future, and and that's why um, they relax us. So for the moment, it's pleasant, it's perfect, um, but then um, on the long run. Um, they impede us doing the necessary steps to achieve the desired future. So it's, it sounds like these data are really in line with some other research uh, that suggests that if people who spend more time daydreaming actually rate their, themselves as being less happy. So I'm thinking of um, Matthew Killingsworth. Uh, work uh, where he he was tracking people's happiness with a little app. Uh, you know, he it would randomly go off during the day, and you know they it would ask people what they were doing and how happy they were. And it turns out the more people time spent people spent daydreaming, the less happy they seem to be overall. Um, and do, so, do you think that this is in line with that with that notion, or is this something different? Well, it it, it could be part of the story. Um, that, that, you know, those who daydream might also positively daydream and therefore kind of feel they don't need to do anything um, anymore. But um, in these data, sort of the, the, the frequency of daydreaming in general 
irrespective of um, whether these are positive or negative, irrespective of the values of these statements, that they um, actually breed or correlate at least with, with a little happiness um, doesn't need to follow only that pattern which I described. There are lots of alternative explanations which also make sense in explaining these um, these patterns. So that might be part of the story, but it's it's certainly not against what we're finding. Um, but I think there there are just a host more of processes going on um, in in the finding that the, the frequency of daydreaming, irrespective of positivity, um, actually goes along with with a little happiness. What we really say is, or what we find and what our research is about is, um, the more positively, sheer positively idealistic daydreams we have, the less we are motivated at the moment to get into gears and to actually achieving it. And that also implies if I don't want to do anything or if I cannot do anything because there is no action possibility, um, then these daydreams and these positive daydreams might be a, a nice way to, um, you know, just to kind of waste our time um, not doing anything. But it's pleasurable. And so if I... If I don't have anything to do and I want to relax a little bit, I can use these positive daydreams to relax. And that's going back now what I said at the beginning. You just need to know um, how you can actually use these daydreams in a fruitful way where you just need them right now. So whether you want to relax and just have a good time or whether you actually want to achieve these daydreams. And if you know the data, then you can um, take these daydreams and, and use them to your um, to your best of all. So I, in a minute, I want to talk about exactly how we should be daydreaming in order to uh, accomplish what it is that we want to accomplish. But I just wanted to first ask you to talk a little bit about this idea too, that, that it's pleasurable to daydream and sometimes that that can be more important than getting things done. So in your book, you talk about situations uh, in which people don't have control. So, and they can be horrible, like uh, people who are in concentration camps during the second world war. And the dreaming might have been one thing that sort of helped these people get through very difficult times. Uh, is that an, an accurate uh, assessment of, of your thoughts on the matter? Yeah, I mean, if you, if, later we'll, we'll talk about this mental contrasting, and mental contrasting is a change agent. Now, if you don't want to change and you just want to sort of get the, the time pass, then certainly um, you can use positive daydreams. And if you cannot act because you can't engage there are no action possibilities, but you can't disengage either because you 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 just are kind of caught in a situation. Um, then certainly positive daydreams help you at least keep your spirits up. And uh, for that, I think um, positive daydreams and positive fantasies um, have also a very important function. So I just need to know whether I want to have them in order to actually um, hang in despite the fact that I can't act or whether I want to use them to actually change my behavior and act and 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 get the, the possibilities which um, life offers to me. 
Well, of course, this also calls into question a little bit the, you know, the fact that a lot of the people who seem to buy into these notions, um, who seem to follow some of these gurus, uh, you know, they tend to be or I'm not, this might be a total generalization, I'm not sure, but this is my impression, they tend to be of a lower SES, uh, socioeconomic status, which also means that they have less control over how they're able to spend their time. Uh, And so this might be a way in which, you know, it could be sort of helpful for them to get through it. But Let's talk about mental contrasting and what we can actually do, how we can use our daydreaming time in a more positive way to actually affect change. So what is mental contrasting? Um, I want to go back to what you said in terms (laughs) of um, um, the SES. Um, Not necessarily do you have in your private life and in your relationships and in your work life fewer action possibilities when uh, when you are higher or lower or middle or whatever SES. Um, I think we need to be very careful here. Um, what what I mean are, are are situations where people objectively have, have no possibilities to act. So for example, very simple thing which happens to low SES and high SES people. You 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 um, prepare an application, you send the application um, and then you wait until the response comes back. So with respect to whether you will be admitted or not, you have no action possibilities. But you have certainly action possibilities in terms of um, how you can productively and fruitfully use the time between now and then when, when, the, um, when, the, when the answer comes back. So you can positively fantasize in terms of that you might be admitted, but you might not positively fantasize and use mental contrasting, where we now um, sort of want to talk about, um, with respect to using that time most fruitfully so that you don't sit um, around and are worrying all the time. So you do have a lot of action possibilities where you don't think you have them, and um, that you will discover with mental contrasting. So, yeah, so, so what is mental contrasting? Now, when mental contrasting is basically what we just talked about. It starts with identifying a wish. So what is your most important wish? What is it that is really dear to you that is something you would like to um, achieve? And it can be something really kind of uh, life-changing. Or it can be something, you know, something, you know, until um, maybe the, the January 30th, the first month of the year, um, or something for today. How can I sort of savor my day today? Um, what? So you define the wish which you have and which is really dear to you. Not what others say. What is dear to you? And you can think about what is it actually that is dear to me? And then you identify the best outcome if you fulfill that wish. And then you imagine that outcome. So it's daydreaming. It is exactly what we were talking about. You daydream, you fantasize about ideally fulfilling that wish and experiencing that outcome. And then instead of kind of indulging and sort of staying on and um, being just kind of taken away um, of your daydreams, you now say, now what is it in me that holds me back? What is it actually that stops me? from fulfilling that wish and experiencing that outcome. What is it in me 
what holds me back? And it can be an emotion, it can be an irrational belief, it can be an old hang-up. And you need to identify that obstacle, that impediment in you that keeps you from fulfilling your wish and experiencing the outcome. And once you identify that, then you imagine that obstacle. And by imagining that obstacle, it will get very clear what you can do to overcome and deal with that obstacle. Or it might be happening that you say this obstacle is just too big, okay? This other thing is is just too important for me. And let me put that wish on hold, or let, it delegate, let me delegate it, or let me put it um, for a later time, or let... I, I might say, I let it go. Um, so what medical testing then does, it, it shows you which of your wishes you really want and you can fulfill, and which of these wishes you might say, well, they're not for me right now. They might be something which I can um, put on the back burner or which I um, can let go from. So it is a means to clear up your life, to um, make it, obvious to you what you really want and what you can do and then it also shows you the means how to get there and what you better leave off or just sort of let go and then it also helps you to um, revise these wishes so let's say you have your wish you know and do exercise seven weeks and uh, seven uh, days a week um, so every day I want to do exercise and how nice would it be I would feel so fit. So then comes the obstacle. Now what stands in the way is that when I come home, I'm really, really tired. So you might say, okay, well, if I come home and I'm tired, then I put on my running shoes and I'm out there. Or you might say, well, yeah, when I come home, I'm so tired, but I will not be able to overcome this. But at the weekend, I will not be so tired. And at the weekend then, okay, if it is Sunday morning or whatever, then I will go out and, and, and run. So you can calibrate then your wish and see where the wish is too big um, so you can let it go or where the wish is just right and um, you attach to it and you actually fulfill it. Well, it sounds extremely positive and I'm looking forward to trying it. But do you have any data that, that supports that, that, that this type of daydreaming actually is effective more so than the positive fantasy that seems to correlate negatively with desired outcome? Well, we have plenty of experiments um, which show that um, this mental contrasting is effective. And, um, and not only do we show that it is effective in many areas, such as in the achievement area for getting better grades or um, actually for um, integrating different life domains, such as um, integrating work and integrating um, um, family or having a child for, for doctoral students, for example, um, for going abroad, for um, improving um, one's job experience and, 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 but also in the interpersonal domain, solving interpersonal conflicts and um, taking on more responsibility, asking for help and giving more help. Um, and also in the health domain for, um, you know, doing what you need to do in order to reduce smoking, um, for losing weight, for um, uh, doing more exercise, for 
um, actually overcoming pain and so on. So we we know very well that it does help um, much better than um, than the sheer positive fantasizing, but also with respect to other control groups, um, just thinking about the obstacles doesn't help you either. Um, and um, just doing nothing or kind of having a kind of control exercise um, um, doesn't help you um, um, uh, either. So we know not only that it helps, but we also know how it helps. Um, we did a lot of experiments showing that um, mental contrasting actually instills um, processes um, that are outside of our awareness. And these processes then mediate or um, predict the behavior change. So, for example, um, when you do mental contrasting of wishes that are feasible, then you build a very close connection between the future and the reality so that you cannot really think about the future anymore without thinking about the obstacle of reality. And you develop a close connection between the obstacle of reality and the instrumental means to overcome the reality. And in addition, the meaning of reality changes. So that the reality, so for example, a party is not a fun event anymore, but now it's an obstacle to doing well, let's say, on the exam on Tuesday, the party on Saturday is now an obstacle. So it changes meaning in mental contrasting. So if you imagine doing well on on the exam on Tuesday, and then you say, now, oh, what stands in the way? It's the party on Saturday. Then suddenly the party on Saturday is the obstacle. It's not a fun event anymore. And in addition, what mental contrasting does, it energizes you. And we can measure that either by systolic blood pressure changes or we can measure it by subjective reports. And all these cognitive and um, motivational or energization um, processes actually then predict the behavior change later on, predict whether um, I'm, I do well on the TARF score, um, I'm um, more... Um, attaining or kind of getting nearer to um, my wish fulfillment. So you're measuring behavior change in addition to sort of self-report of satisfaction, because I can imagine that if I went through a mental contrasting exercise, I could convince myself uh, that the thing that I want is out of reach. And so I will be satisfied with less because I've sort of talked myself out of my dream. Um, do you do you think that that's a, a, a worry or a, or a potential problem with mental contrasting? Or do you see that, in fact, that's not the case? Well, that's not the case at all, um, because we, first of all, all these cognitive changes and the motivation changes I just talked about, they're outside of our awareness. So people not, they don't report about it. We measure those in reaction time experiments and in, in blood pressure measure, measurements. So, so people not even can report about those. Um, that's one thing. And then the other thing is, um, the more objectively we measure the outcomes of these um, um, procedure of, of mental contrasting, the, the more clear and, and um, obvious patterns of results we get. So um, meaning that, you know, if we measure um, weight or if we measure um, kind of the, the, the speeds with which people do something or um, objective measures of um, how well um, people sort of uh, 
to a creativity task, for example, um, then we get even even clearer data as if um, than in the studies where we have self-report. So if we can, we we get the most objective measures, not only because they are more convincing, but um, because if if the, the self-report um, does not um, interfere with social desirability and with these justifications you were talking about, then the data are actually clear. Great. So can you tell us about one of your experiments that uh, demonstrated that there is a sort of a, a non-conscious process that is affected by mental contrasting and that then also has some kind of behavioral change outcome? Sure. Um, we did a study where we had um, participants fantasize about getting fitter. And um, then we um, told them that um, a common obstacle to getting fit is that people don't kind of do kind of daily, um, everyday um, activities, um, such as, for example, um, going down um, the stairs. And so people always take the elevator. So that's really standing in the way that people get fitter. And um, and then uh, we had different uh, groups. So we had a mental contrasting group. And then we had a very conservative control group um, where we do, where we um, gave them exactly the same content, but um, we just reversed the order of elaboration. So they didn't start with fantasizing about the future and then fantasized about them or kind of reflected about the obstacle. But they first looked at the obstacle and then fantasized about the future. So that was the control group. So we had exactly the same um, topic. We had exactly the same content. Um, what what was different, though, that one was mental contrasting and the other was what we call reverse contrasting, where um, um, people only um, um, differ in terms of that they start with the reality and then sort of it, that is follow up with with in, uh, images about the future. And when then as a then we measure the link between the obstacle between reality, um, sort of you know that what stands in the way is. Um, that people um, take the, um, th th that they actually are kind of during the day not doing what they should do in terms of um, being active, but that they take um, elevators and, and, and other kind of commodities. And, um, and then the link between that obstacle and the instrumental means to overcome that obstacle um, was stronger in the mental contrasting condition than in the other condition. So the link between what stands in the way in me to overcome, um, um, what, what stands in the way in me to achieve the desired future, which was fitness, and the means to overcome that, which is you, know, you, you should take the stairs and not the elevator, um, was stronger in the medical contrasting group and then in the control group. And interestingly enough, we then asked the, the participants um, to go to a different um, experiment, which was on the first floor, and our experiment was on the, on the, on the fourth floor. And um, when um, the participants came out of our lab, there was an elevator. And um, next to the elevator was all, were the stairs. And um, then we simply measured whether they took the elevator or the stairs. And um, sure enough, the people in the mental contrast group who had a close connection, a close cognitive link between um, the obstacle and the instrumental means to overcome the obstacle um, 
um, these were then the ones who took more the stairs than the than the elevator. So it was a very concrete behavior. We just counted how how often did they take the, how, who took the elevator and who took the stairs. There was the behavior. The the uh, kind of mediating process was the reaction time between obstacle and the means to overcome the obstacle. Um, and this and the conditions differed beautifully in terms of that mental contrasting sort of was creating a stronger link between the obstacle and the instrument it needs to overcome the obstacle, and it also created um, more uh, stair taking. That's that's great. And then the control loop. So it's 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 a very concrete behavior. So, yeah. so you know we have fun doing these kinds of experiments, which um, which are very um, very much tuned towards behavior change. Yeah, that's that's excellent. And I just I just want to get a little bit more into the nitty gritty and have you describe how you measure that link. So what is the process by which you measure the link between the obstacle and the desired outcome? Well, that's called uh, a primed lexical decision task. And what we do in very simple words, um, we give as a cue the obstacle and then we we check how long people um, take in order um, to uh, recognize the, the, the instrumental means as a word. Right. So that, so that it's, means it's, it's reaction times, meaning um, so it's, it's not that, that people um, even understand what they're doing. Yeah. So I'm looking at a screen and I see very briefly flashed up the word stairs. And it's sort of how long can I tell you that that's an, a word versus a nonsense syllable that is your control? Is that correct? Yes, exactly. Yeah, so it's non-conscious. People can't, you know, use their consciousness to, uh, you know, essentially manipulate their reaction time in that task. So that that's, that's that's a wonderful tool to use. So in your book, you also have a great acronym for mental contrasting. Uh, I think uh, that is WOOP, <laughs> W O O P. So I wanted you to unpack that for our listeners so that we can all go home and start whooping in 2015. Yeah, well, that's great. The whooping um, is a tool which everybody can take. And um, if you want to know a little bit more about whooping, just go on whoopmylife.org. This is W O O P, mylife.org. And um, just today, actually, um, uh, we kind of launched um, an app for adults. We already had an app for children um, where you can actually um, kind of try out that book procedure. And what it is is basically what we were talking about. So you, you, you generate a wish that is really dear to you. This is the first letter in book. It's, it's a W. And then once you know what you really want, what what is your wish? What is it that you want? Then you generate the first O, which is the outcome. What is the best outcome if you fulfill that wish? And then you actually imagine that best outcome. You experience the outcome occurring in your mind. And then you take turns and you say, okay, what is it in me that holds me back from fulfilling that wish? What stops me from fulfilling that wish? And that's then the second O. And the second O is then also imagined. 
and you you imagine that second O, and then while you do that, you discover how you could actually overcome that obstacle. And then you do a simple plan. And the plan is an if-then plan or implementation intention, how it, the, the cycling says it. And that is discovered by Peter Goldwitzer, um, who is also here at NYU. And the plan goes the following. You say, if obstacle, and then you imagine the obstacle, then I will, and now you imagine the behavior to overcome the obstacle. And that's then the P in the book. So again, it's W for wish, O for outcome, and you imagine the outcome, O for obstacle, and you imagine the obstacle, and then you say, plan, if obstacle, then I will, and now you put in the behavior to overcome or deal with the obstacle. That's basically work. And work is not a strategy where you then suddenly become the CEO of Coca-Cola or something. Um, what is a strategy you can use for all sorts of wishes as long as you keep the structure? So I said before in this experiment, when you when you exchange the two O's, it start with the obstacle and then you only come to the outcome, then it will not work. You need to see the obstacle in the context of the future outcome. So just follow the four-step process because we know that from these many experimental studies that this four-step process is what really makes it. But you can fill in whatever wish you want to put in and then you will get clarity whether you can overcome that obstacle and whether you can actually achieve it and go for it and whether you want that or whether you say, well, maybe that's not for the moment. But be careful that you, when you look at the second O, that you take an obstacle that is in you because you can't really change the system. You can't change your boss. You can't change your company. You can't change your husband. You can't, you can't change a lot out there. But what you can do is you can find an obstacle in you that you can change. And that's the reason why it is important to get at the obstacle in you rather than sort of, um, you know, fall prey to all these excuses which we usually have. And this is sometimes a little tricky to find the obstacle which is in you, but with a little bit of humor and a little bit of, you know, that you kind of smile about your, your weaknesses or smile about um, what, what your hang-up is or what your emotion is, um, you will discover it. And once you discover what an important obstacle in you is, um, then you will find a way to overcome it. And, um, and, and then you have a method where you can actually um, fulfill your wishes, small, bigger, kind of midterm, long-term, short-term. Um, and even if you don't immediately fulfill your wish, you will try again, you will try it with a different obstacle, you try it with a different plan, um, and then you really get to it. But what it really helps you is to get involved again, to get involved in your work, and you get involved in your relationships, and you get involved in, in life again. And it's also super helpful when, um, when you have stress. Well, there you have it, how science can help you keep your New Year's resolutions. <laughs> so thank you very much for being on Inquiring Minds, Gabrielle Uttingen. Thank you for having me, and good luck with Whoopi. 
whoop, there it was. <laughs> yeah, kind of amazing. Uh, so this is somewhere in between scientific rigor and a self-help uh, I know, conversation. You know, I, I, I agree with you. And, and the book kind of read that way, too, for me. And, and so, you know, there's a part of me that every time there's some kind of like, you know, sniff of self-help you know there's there's a part of me that draws up all of its tentacles and i just you know i react very strongly and i'm very very skeptical um but she has data to back up some of this some of these you know these claims this this notion that the order in which you do this fantasizing makes a difference obstacle first you know and then yeah and and so i don't know i don't know if it's just the way that it's packaged that sometimes makes me feel a little bit uncomfortable with it? Or is it simply that, um, you know, here's because because the data are supportive. And are we overstepping here? You know, I don't know. It was actually interesting to hear you um, ask probing questions about how they collect the data, because I think that's my obstacle to uh, my skeptical obstacle and into believing some of this stuff. And she does have a lot of really supportive data. Uh, on this fact, I think there's a whole world of data that can be developed, and there are weaknesses um, and that I don't think she had a chance to get to. So that whoop paradigm practice, whatever we want to call it, uh, only works um, if you look at the research for people that have um, medium confidence or higher. So like they they consider themselves mildly self-confident. You can imagine somebody with low self-confidence trying to go, what do I wish for? I wish for my, you know, I wish for the street sweeper not to give me a ticket today. You know, it like not having much uh, in terms of being able to focus on something they deeply care about because they lack the confidence to do so. Well, she also, challenging. Though she also talks about how it's important that the wish be something that's under your control, right? So she yeah. does try to train you into wishing in the right way, um, which is something that, you know, like if, if I'm going into an audition and ultimately I want to win the role, it's not in my hands about whether or not I win the role. It's only in my hands is how well I sing in the audition. So my wish should be I'm going to sing really well in the audition, not my not I'm going to land the role. Are you convinced enough to try this? Um, I am convinced enough to try it, you know, but there's still a part of me that wonders if I will be able to get over my own, you know, kind of skepticism and actually do it right. Right. I mean, that's kind of that's that's one of the big issues for me is that, yeah, I can sit at home and I can and I can whoop it up. <laughs> but, you know, is it going to be effective if there's still a part of me that thinks, you know, this is silly. I should really just go out and actually do the things that I need to do in order to make this Do you thing make happen. resolutions? I do every year for like, you know, and they and they vary. Some years they're really ambitious and some years they're, you know, just really, you can't possibly not keep them. And I'm very bad at keeping them. I'm horrible <laughs> at keeping them too. I usually make like two to three and I try to edit so that I'm, I'm going to make it through <laughs> somehow. Uh, and every year I, I fall apart in March or April. And so I'm actually thinking about trying this methodology to it because one of my resolutions is to read two books a month. You know, something totally under my control, yeah. manageable under my circumstances. So on the way over here, I started like like wishing about why I want to read and like just sort of thinking about why it was important for me to to read. And, and it was all sorts of things like when I read, I spend time – I spend more quality time with my wife and there's less distractions like the TV being on. And it turns out like 
we have a more close knit sort of family communication that night when I read more and just like all of those things. And it was, it was actually really nice. And then thinking about the obstacles was really easy to come up with. Um, <laughs> so I'm actually going to try it out. I'm going to see how it goes. Um, there's a whole website that like coaches you up on how to, how to do it. Um, so I'll be interested. I'm happy to report back on how I'll do, but, uh, I have to say I'm entering it not being optimistic. <laughs> I've never made it past April. Why would I think I would be able to get past it all yeah, of a sudden I mean, now? Ultimately, I see this as, as a tool. You know, I don't know that I'm going to necessarily use Whoop for every goal that I have in the rest of my life forever more. And, you know, but I do think that on, on thinking about the fact that imagining an obstacle and then planning how you're going to and, and sort of imagining how you're going to overcome that obstacle is something that I don't usually do. Um, directly. I mean, I kind of do it indirectly uh, when I'm trying to plan my week or what have you. Um, But that's something that I think I want to get better at is actually, you know, looking at the obstacles within myself that I need to overcome. And, you know, we'll see if it works. The other thing I was was left with uh, was this notion that the people that seem to daydream and daydream in sort of the wrong way is the way she implied, were less happy. Oh, that's that's Killingsworth work. Uh, work. Yeah, yeah that, it's it's wonderful research because it sort of shows us that what we think, you know, we we think these things. It's it's so counterintuitive, you know, and yet this notion that daydreaming is so attractive, you know, it's like it's like watching television or like doing all the things that we shouldn't be doing. Uh, that we spend so much time in it, and it actually does make you less happy. So that's it for another episode. Thank you, Kishore, for joining us this week. It was a pleasure to be here. And I want to thank all of you for for also listening to this installment of Inquiring Minds. You can visit our website at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds. And you can find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show, on Facebook at slash Inquiring Minds Podcast. And you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, your New Year's resolutions, or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. Once again, this week's episode is sponsored by lynda.com. Lynda.com is used by millions of people all around the world and has over 3,000 courses on topics like web development, photography, visual design, and business, as well as software training like Excel, WordPress, and Photoshop. And you can get a free 10-day trial to Lynda.com by visiting lynda.com slash minds. Learn something new in 2015. That's L-Y-N-D-A dot com slash minds. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with The Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration in partnership with The Atlantic, the Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, Mother Jones, Slate, Wired, and The Huffington Post. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. Bring spring color inside this season with Bare Premium Plus paint starting at $28.98 a gallon at the Home Depot. Add a pop of blue to your kitchen with the Bare Exclusive Color Arrowhead Lake. Or a splash of Amazon Jungle to your living room. Bring a cool breeze to your bathroom with sea glass. Whatever your inspiration, start your spring with durable colors that last all season with Bare Premium Plus paint starting at $28.98 a gallon at the Home Depot. How doers get more done.